Well, if you have not yet been with us, perhaps for the first two weeks of June, you will, uh, well, you'll find out today, that we've been working through and studying through the, the small book in the New Testament known as 1 John. And we're going to be working through this little book all summer long. Uh, we're going to be reading through it. We're studying it, actually, as a church. And we're, we've challenged many of you, and I hope some of you have taken up this challenge, to, chal- to, to memorize the very first chapter of 1 John. If you can do that, it's about 13 verses, and so if you can memorize 13 verses over, you know, the entire summer, uh, you know, roughly 24, 25 weeks, if you can do that, then then great job. I mean, uh, the work of trying to get God's Word not just in your head, but also in your heart as a way to, to truly immerse yourself in that Word. Now, this series, we're doing it, it's meant to shape how we approach the Bible, how to study Scripture. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've known that we've, we've even been challenging you to bring your Bible to church. So if you, did, if you forgot to bring it again, don't worry. You'll, you'll, here's another reminder. Bring it next week. Bring your Bible to church. Bring a pen or a pencil and, and mark it up. Write it up. We'll show you different things to do along the way. As, as what does it look like to, to truly dive into this book and learn what it's saying? Now, you could say that this series is almost meant to try to sharpen or deepen us in the spiritual disciplines of study and memorization. But don't let those words scare you, okay? Study and memorization, all they are is about going deeper in in the knowledge of what the Bible says. As disciples of Jesus, we want to know what God's Word says because we're called to do what God's Word says. How can you live by God's Word if you don't know what it says, right? And the truth is, we live in an age of biblical illiteracy, More and more people in our culture have absolutely no concept of what the Bible says or what's in it or how to navigate it. And so we got to begin somewhere. What does it learn? What does it look like to begin truly reading our Bibles? And so again, challenge you. Memorize the first chapter of, of, of first John. And as, we were, as we're working through this message, follow along in your Bible. Really read it. Don't just let me tell you what it says. Really read what it says. Take notes in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the, those Bibles that are in the pews, just take it. It's yours. If you need one to work through, take that Bible home with you and work through it. Write, write in it whatever you need to dive into this book. Now, last week, if you were here, Mitchell Ross, which is a, who is our church's communications manager, he was with us, and he preached on the final portion of chapter 1. And Mitch, he did a great job. Friends, for those of you who don't know, that was Mitchell's first time ever preaching a sermon. And he did a phenomenal job, and I'm so grateful that he was here to fill in for me while we were out of town on vacation. But if you were here, you heard him talk about the contrast of light and darkness, which is what John talks about at the very end of that chapter, and how followers of Jesus are called to live in light because we are called to live and be with God, and God is light. But here's the reality. We all stumble into the darkness sometimes, don't we? And we're we're unfaithful to God many times in our lives. We deny him, we rebel against him, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we worship other things. So what then? What do we do when we know we're called to live in the light, but we stumble into the darkness. Well, we ended last week with this powerful statement about what God can do, God's willingness to forgive and purify us, even when we continually stumble into the darkness. We ended looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where John says this, If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This is some deep themes, forgiveness of sin, 
What does it mean to, to confess our sins, to experience purification? Well, today, we're going to see John take this, this idea a, a, a step further. What is sin to begin with? Right? If, if we don't know what sin is, how do we know when we're doing it? How do we know when we are actually sinning? And what does it look like to, to know that we're living in the light? What are the boundaries? What are the parameters, if you will, for us to be able to say, yes, that is a person living in the light. So with that being said, open your Bibles or turn to it, or if, you've got to, if, you, if you're using a phone, go to this. We're going to begin at the very beginning of chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is what, we, what we'll be reading this morning. 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 11. John writes this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. Now, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, one which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Now, how many of you have ever seen a young child struggle with separation anxiety? Right? That first time when that kid is separated from usually mom. Sorry, dads. I know it's Father's Day, but let's be real, right? Usually when that child is first separated from, from mom or from whatever parent, what happens when they're experiencing separation anxiety? They, they cry. They scream. They sob. Why? Now, what's going on? It's, it's because up to this point in their lives, that little child has, their, their entire life has been oriented and, and, and connected to their parent, right? Mom, you literally gave me life. My, my source of life is, is you. Everything I know about my life is dependent on what you do and what you provide for me. And just like that, you're going to drop me off with some stranger who claims to have a lot of toys, Right? Cue this anxiety and, and, and this sobbing and this fear. Separation, it leads to this anxiety. Separation leads to this incredible anxiety. Well, what does this have anything to do with First John? Well, as you perhaps, if you're following along, you heard at the very beginning of this chapter, John starts talking a lot about sin. He says in verses 1 and 2, right? He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
not only ours, for the sins of the whole word, right? He, he mentions sin four different times in the, these two verses. He's really going in into this idea of what is sin. Now, most of the time, when we think of the word sin, you know, we've been conditioned, if you will, to think of this. When we think of the word sin, we just think of those, those bad things that, you, that we do in our lives, right? It's the, the line has been drawn in the sand, and we step over it, right? And we say, that's a sin. Or, or there's this law that's been declared, and if we disobey that law, that's sin. Now, yes, that is sin. But sin goes so much deeper than just that. In fact, if that's our only understanding of sin, the danger of becoming a legalistic person is very, very real, if, we, if, if that's the only idea that we have of, of sin. But sin, as I said, is so much deeper. At its core, sin is a force. And it's a force that specifically creates separation. It's like this enemy invader that, that enters into this particular realm, and in, uh, the moment that it takes over authority, it immediately cuts you off from all other outside connections. Or it's like a disease that, that enters into your body, and the moment that it does, it is cutting you off, separating you from what it means to be healthy. Sin, first and foremost, separates us from God. And if God is the source of life, Sin separates us or cuts us off from the source of life, which means that sin naturally leads to death. So sin, you could say, is the ultimate form of separation anxiety because it separates us from the one who gives us life, the one who, who has molded us and formed us and knows exactly who you are created to be. One theologian has said that sin is just simply this, the feeling that things are not the way they're supposed to be. When that is the experience or the feeling or, the, or the, the sense that one is carrying with, you are aware of the fact that there is sin present somewhere, everywhere, sometimes immersed in one's life. Now, to help you think of sin as separation, maybe go so far as to do this. Circle the word sin right there in your Bibles and write the word separation there in the margin if you need to, right? Circle that word. And so when you're thinking of sin, you're not just thinking of, oh, I did something wrong. Yes, but there's a broader, deeper consequence there of experiencing separation from God and from what God has for you in your life. Think of it this way. Have you ever seen a tree root sticking up out of the ground? You ever been walking down the sidewalk and you see a root or you tripped over it or in the park or whatever? Well, what happens if you take an ax and you decide to just cut that root from the tree? Eventually, it's going to die, right? And the reason is because the root has been separated from its source of life. Now, at first, you won't see any change at all. But over time, the separation leads to a dead root. Sin always causes separation. Sin always causes separation. Even the very first sin, Adam and Eve, they broke God's command. They allowed sin to rule in their lives. And what did they do? Genesis 3.8 tells us. It says they hid from the Lord God. What did, they, what did they seek to do after sin? They intentionally tried to separate themselves from God. Sin always leads to separation and encourages separation. It often is, is doing everything it can to try to separate you from the one thing that is meant to ex give you the wholeness and fullness and meaning and purpose and, and eternal life that God wants you to have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sin seeks to separate us from God. Sin breaks relationships. Sin fractures communities. 
If you've been with us the last few weeks, you might remember that in some of the opening pages of this book, 1 John, John is talking about the importance of fellowship. Is fellowship separation? No, it's the opposite, right? It's this sense of deep, deep abiding union, both with God and with one another. Some have said that so much of the Christian message is about experiencing union with God through Christ. Fellowship with God through Christ. Fellowship with one another through Christ. Yet sin leads to the opposite of that. Sin seeks to break down relationships. It seeks to cut us off from one another and from God. It seeks to fracture fellowships and and, and whole communities. Even though we were built, designed, created for intentional, deep union, relationship, fellowship, Sin takes us away. Okay, so we get it. Sin is not good, right? Sin is a bad thing. We get it. Well, what's the solution? What are we supposed to do about this? Well, John goes right into the next answer by saying, Jesus died on the cross. You see it there in verse 2. We read it earlier. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is a very, very deep statement. This is deep. John is trying to pack his theology of what happened on the cross in one tiny little sentence. On the cross, God was seeking to destroy the power of sin. Jesus was bearing the weight of sin on the cross, dying in our place, and in doing so, he's offering himself to God as an atoning sacrifice. Now, I wish we could go into this deep theology of what the atonement means. It's a rich, deep massive topic. I mean, people write books this big about the atonement, and we still haven't quite fully figured out what exactly is it that's going on in this place. But in a nutshell, whenever you see the word atone or atonement or atoning, atonement means to make amends for a wrong. And so on the cross, in a way that sometimes is is difficult for us to comprehend, Jesus is amending, reconciling, redeeming the separation that took place, that, that sin is creating between God and humanity. And because of this, says John, Jesus has made it possible for us to be in complete fellowship and union with God. We are, are, we're designed to be in relationship and in fellowship with God. Sin has completely er, fractured that, that, that ability, and yet Jesus, through the cross and his atoning sacrifice, is making it possible once again. God has made a way through Jesus to be fully reunited to God and to one another. So again, we, we, let's, let's go back to verse 1. So again, John writes in 2.1, My dear j- children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Right? This idea, I write this to you because we don't want any of us to be separated from God. We don't want any of you to be fully separated from one another and from God. But if anybody does sin, if anyone is actively sinning or experiencing separation or, or, and, and in need of, of reconciliation, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Notice, not only is Jesus the atoning sacrifice, he is also the advocate. John is saying, Jesus is in your corner. When you are separated from God, you need somebody who can take you by the hand and lead you into the right direction. Have you ever been lost? I, I remember being lost as a little kid. I, was, I got lost in Walmart, and I remember somebody found me, and they became my advocate. Where is this child's parent, right, helping me find where I need to do? Jesus becomes our advocate saying, I'm here with you, and I'm going to take you and lead you to where it is that you need to be. 
Jesus does what is necessary to unite us to God once again. And we can trust that Jesus will seek us out. We can trust that Jesus has what it takes to come find us. Jesus does not expect you to, have, to become this perfect person so, and then become united to God. Instead, Jesus goes to where you are in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your separation, in the midst of your sin. And there, in that place, he says, I'm going to die for you and lead you back to where you need to be. Now, sometimes this marvelous, amazing, powerful message that Jesus is there for us and he will lead us to where we need to be and he will forgive us of our sins and he will overcome all of the sins in our lives. Sometimes this amazing message leads people to say this, well, then who cares if I sin? Well, right, honestly, who, who cares what I do? Because if Jesus is going to forgive me, if Jesus is in my corner, if Jesus is going to go to where I'm at and lead me out of that situation, well, then honestly, who really cares what I do? Why don't I just sin as much as I want to? And then I'll just sit back and wait for Jesus to come in and rescue me, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but the early Christians thought about that too. In fact, the Apostle Paul is the famous one who, re realizing that this was a common trap for a lot of people, wrote this in Romans. He said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Do you hear that phrase? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, God is offering us grace and forgiveness because of sin. Well, does that mean we should sin more so that we'll get more grace? By no means, says Paul. Right? You, I, I wish you could hear someone just like, by no, we wish we talked like this, my way. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we go on living any longer, living in it any longer? Now, if you want, I mean, if that's a question that you've thought about, perhaps write a little asterisk right next to th this passage, right, right where John's talking about sin. And maybe you want to write Romans 6, 1 and 2, right, right next to it as a way to kind of cue your mind that here's another disciple, another part of the Bible talking about sin. Okay, so what is this idea? What's going on here when Paul says, by no means, we can't go sinning any longer just to get more grace? Paul is saying, look, Christians have died to sin, which means that you have become the kind of person who seeks to not intentionally sin. You've been united to God, and you are now living a life in unity with God. Following Jesus is not about getting some, or it's not about getting some system to get forgiven, right? Like, oh, here's my forgiveness system. I just have to do this, 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 and then I'm ultimately redeemed by God. Thank you, God. No, following Jesus is about becoming an entirely new person who no longer lives the way that you once lived. So think about it this way. Let's say that you're trying to become a healthier person, okay? And you declare, I am going to die to junk food. Any of you ever said that before? I'm going to die to junk food. In other words, you're saying, I'm going to change my diet, right, to become a healthy person. Well, if you wake up the next morning and you say, well, you know what? I'm going to start eating a dozen donuts every day for breakfast. You have not died to junk food. Yes, but, but I can experience forgiveness and become a healthy person the next day. Well, then you've not actually you know, followed through on what it is that you're called to do. 
You're not avoiding junk food for the sake of becoming a healthy person. If you, if you actually are going to do this, you have to become the kind of person who does the hard work of avoiding junk food, and it's going to be really, really hard at the beginning, but the more and more you do it, the more and more you become the kind of person who naturally wants to eat healthy. Following Jesus means dying to sin, which means to avoid the sinful patterns in your life while likewise practicing new, holy, life-giving habits until you naturally become the kind of person who wants to live a holy life. So if you decide to try to sin in order to get more forgiveness, you've totally missed it. You're not becoming the kind of person who's just trying to get as much forgiveness out of God as you can. The goal is to become the kind of person who naturally wants to live the way that Jesus lives. And you begin to sin less and less and less. You're growing as a Christian in maturity. The less you intentionally sin, the less you knowingly sin. In a sense, that's, that's a key part of discipleship, to be growing in your maturity of faith by becoming more and more holy and thus less and less sin. And that's actually what John talks about next. He says this in verses 3 through 6 about true discipleship. He says, we know that we have come to know him. We've we've, We've come to know God. We know that we've come to know who God is if we keep his commands. We'll talk about that in a second. Whoever says, I know him, right? I know God. I know Jesus. You know, I'm a Christian. I know the guy. I know the guy upstairs. I hear people say that all the time but does not do what God commands, well, that person's a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If you've ever wondered, what does it mean to follow Jesus? This is it. Live like Jesus did. How do I I follow Jesus? John says, well, are you doing what Jesus wants you to do? It's that simple. You don't have to come up with some big, long list of, oh, this is how I know I'm a Christian. John says, if you are a disciple, then you're doing what Jesus wants you to do. It's that simple. There's other references in the Bible that talk a lot about this. In fact, a a, a great one that I want to point you to is is in the book of James. So, in fact, maybe write this in the margin if you want. James 1.22, okay? James 1.22. Write that in the margin if you wish. This is what James 1.22 says. Some of you know this verse. It says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what it looks like. You now represent Jesus. When you call yourself a Christian, you're representing Jesus. And so you reflect Jesus and you seek to obey Jesus. The truth of what it means to be a disciple is to live a life in obedience to Jesus. It means you are obeying what Jesus wants you to do. But that obedience, the obedience that we seek, is an an obedience that is rooted in a very particular thing. We can obey for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes we obey things, we we obey somebody out of fear, right? Oh, I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm just going to obey what they have to say. But as a follower of Jesus, our obedience is supposed to be rooted in love. The Gospel of Matthew says it this way. Jesus says in Matthew 22, he says, what are the greatest commandments, right? Something to obey, love, the Lord your God. 
with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience to God's commands must be rooted in love. John will talk about this later on in chapters 3, especially. Chapter 311 is, is a big one. John is talking about this new command to love, that everything that we're called to do as followers of Jesus, that as we seek excuse me, as we are reunited to God, as we overcome the separation of sin, as we then seek to live into this new life of following Jesus, all of it has to be rooted in love. Do you see where John talks about the love of God is being made complete, right? That this idea that God's love in you, it starts small and then it begins to grow and grow and grow until you become the kind of person who is so saturated and permeated with love for God, that that love gets lived out in so many aspects of your life that, it, that, it's almost, that it's contagious and it's transformational. Obedience and following Jesus must be rooted in love. That's what John's talking about whenever he's talking about giving, you a, giving us a command, a new command, an old command. He's telling us this is the command to love. All that we do as Christians is rooted in this command from Jesus to love. Now, check out what John says in verses 7 through 8. He says, look, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is, is the message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This command is to love. Now, some of you, you if you're paying attention, you might notice there's something strange going on in these few verses. John's talking about this command, this command to love God and to love others. But is this command that John's talking about, to love God and love others, is it this brand new idea? Or or I should ask, is it new or is it old? Now notice, this this is a little bit strange at times. At first, John says, I'm not writing you a new command. This is an old command. You've had it from the beginning. I'm not writing you something new. But then he goes right into the next verse and he says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Which is it, John? Is it an old command to love or is it a new command to love? What's going on here? Well, the command to love, well, I mean, it's both. The command to love is old in the sense that this has been around since the beginning of God's intention for the world. Right? It's, it's, written, right in the, it's written in the Old Testament. Leviticus 9.18 goes, harkens back to what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's where that phrase comes from. So it's an old, old command. Yes, we're called to love God. Deuteronomy 6 is where we see this command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's an old, old command. It's been there since the beginning. God is love, and if God is loving, then he wants all of us to also be loving as well. It is an old command is love. So what's new about it then? What makes it new if it's also an old command that John's trying to talk to Christians about? Well, John is is remembering what Jesus taught him and the other disciples about this command to love. Here's what Jesus said in John's gospel. John 13, uh, John is remembering some of what Jesus was teaching his disciples as to what it means to love. In John 13, Jesus says this, A new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking. A new command I give you. He's talking to his disciples. Love one another. Okay, hold on. That's not new, Jesus. We know we're supposed to do that. And then, here's the kicker. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. See what Jesus is doing? He's taking the old commandment to love and redefining it 
based on his, his, his own actions. The new phrase, the new key phrase that Jesus is giving us about this commandment is this, as I have loved you. If you want to love one another and you want to love God, love the way that I am loving. Jesus is giving his disciples this new metric, a new litmus test for their love. This is radically important, right? Because many times when it comes to love, we don't really have any standard that we're shooting for. We're just sort of like, uh, you know, I'm so, I know I'm supposed to be a good person. And, and so our standard for love just sort of becomes whatever whim of definition of love happens to be in the culture at any given time. And as a result, the ways in which we go about loving one another is totally impacted on whatever we call love at any given point in time within our culture. But when Jesus says, no, I'm giving you the new standard for love, the new standard for love is, as I have loved you. If you want to know what love is, look to me. See how I am loving you. Are, is it self-sacrificial? Is it, is it selfless? Is it a radical giving up of oneself for the sake of another? Is it a radical love, a communication of truth and grace? Is it leaving your comfort zone and going to a place of another? And on and on and on and on. How is Jesus loving you? And that becomes the standard for how you want to love another person. This is radically important for us because it becomes the measure of how we know we're loving another person in the ways of Jesus. Our love for others must be based on how Jesus loves us. In order to, to love others, we look to Jesus. So it's Father's Day. How many of you dads have ever said this? Do as I say, not as I do. Moms probably said it too, right? Do as I say, not as I do. Well, if you've ever said that to your kid, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to get mad at you, but, but if you've ever said that, think about it. You're basically telling your kid, look, my actions are not worthy enough to be modeled. And deep down, we all know that our kids imitate us more than they listen to us. Come on, right? We know that they imitate us more than they listen to us. Jesus is telling his disciples, which includes you and me, do as I say and do as I do. Do as I say and do as I do. Because we all, we, we, we all don't always know how to love those people in our lives, do we? Come on, you probably can think of somebody right now. You're like, do I really got to love them? We don't always know how to love the people in our lives. So what do we do? Jesus says, love them the way I would. In order to know how to love, we look to Jesus. And if love becomes the defining metric of what it means to be a father of Jesus, that's why John then finishes this section with these words. Verses 9 to 11, he says this, If anyone claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, you could just, if you needed to, you can just replace that with doesn't love, then they're still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't even know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Love for others is the key to whether someone is living in the light or in the darkness. And so, church, let's be a church that walks in the light. Let's be a church that's defined by loving God and loving others and leading others to overcome the separation from God and to discover fellowship with God because of love. Let's be a church that loves like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us the courage to love others in the manner that you love us? 
And Lord, in the places in our lives where that requires sacrifice, confession, repentance, intentionality, discipline, hard work, the places where it requires us to let go of expectations, will you give us the strength to do so? And will you surround us with your Holy Spirit to enable us to seek to love you in the manner in which you have loved us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.